give you back something, Lord. And I, I say I want to do that, and I do, but everything that I could ever find to offer comes from you. That's true of whatever it is we offer, whether it's our time, our money, our talent, it all has its source in him through us. And so think about that as we pray and bless this, this time together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to give back to you what you have entrusted to us. And Lord, to once again be reminded that we are only stewards. You are the King. Lord, let us give cheerfully to your work here in this church, to the proclamation of the word as it goes forth from Life Point here in San Angelo. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray you would bless it. We pray that you would prepare our hearts this morning to hear your word proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would take your Bible and turn to 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. Before we get started this morning, I want to fix something that I forgot to do, I intended to. Um, There's a story on the front of the Wall Street Journal this morning about a 12-year-old boy and his 5-year-old brother who live in the Ukraine who lost both of their parents to the conflict that's going on there. Um, I'd encourage that you, if you have time, maybe this afternoon, read that article. Um, the reason that I bring it up now is I meant to pray for him during the pastoral prayer this morning for both of these kids. And I think that if we would go on today without enjoying the freedoms that we're given here while not acknowledging the suffering of these young people, uh, there would be something less of what we've done together. So let's pray. Uh, for these kids. Father God, we come into your presence and again, and God, we just ask your mercy on the young people of Ukraine who are suffering in the face of, Lord, what we know is the outworking of sin and the outworking of Satan's deception in the lives of men, people who have perpetrated war for unjust reasons. Father, we lament the suffering that is happening. Uh, Father, we also know that you're sovereign. And we know that there is always a purpose. 
uh, to what happens in this life, and the conflict doesn't escape that reality. And so, Father, we ask for these two boys that have lost their parents that you'd work their suffering uh, in the direction of their good and your glory. We pray, Father, that you would send a gospel witness into their life, that they would hear the word, and that they would, by the power of the Spirit, be born anew. And, Father, that they would rejoice in knowing you and knowing that you forgive and you restore. Father, we pray that this conflict would come to an end soon. And we pray that men who have committed crimes in this way would find that they have fallen back into the traps they have set for innocent people. We pray that your justice would prevail. And we pray that we would have the wisdom to leave these things in your hands. In Christ's name, amen. 1 John chapter 5, if you would. We have been here for some time. And we have, I hope, grown tremendously by what we have been taught. I come this morning to speak to you of unspeakable things. At least that's how Peter puts it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he records these words. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you did not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, that is unspeakable, and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We come this morning to a, a gospel that does not need to be propped up by cute cliches, fads, or poor pastoral humor. We come to a gospel that reaches beyond the political promises that seem to fail every generation. We come to a gospel that is something better than we could ever hope of. We come to a gospel that is altogether unspeakable and filled with glory. And yet, God this morning calls us to speak about these things. It's unspeakable not in the sense that we can't understand it or articulate the undergirding doctrines of this gospel. It's unspeakable in the reality that the joy that it should bring to our hearts this morning cannot be fully conveyed in human expression. And friends, this glorious gospel, this unspeakable gospel, is really the exact same thing that the old messenger of God, John the Apostle, is trying to convey in the course of his letter to us. He knows what the world is like. He doesn't seek to just prop up the church motivationally, seeking to move her along ideologically. He doesn't seek to just paint a picture of the world as though it were uh, fluffy and everything was light. He doesn't do that because he genuinely loves the people of God. And so as loving shepherds do, he works through the tough issues to guard them against predatory teaching and to lead them to lasting joy in the truth. You see, this joy is not found in a movement or a method. This joy is found only in a real relationship with Christ and His church. Friends, we live in a day when so much promises to bring us contentment and joy. There's so much advertising and there's so much 
peddling of different things that promise they will ultimately bring us satisfaction. But the fact is that generation after generation, the only true and lasting joy that we can have in this life is found in the glory of the unspeakable wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ. John tells us that we must be careful about buying into things that will rob us of our joy. He has spoken, telling us that we need to test the spirits. Because John believes that false teaching will really cripple the church and she won't have joy. John believes that the Gospel must be heralded in the power and the authority of the Spirit of Almighty God and cannot be something merely peddled by false professors. We live in a day and age that the the moniker of the church today is theology doesn't matter. The only church that buys into that kind of thinking is the church that has forgotten all of what happened to Job. Do you remember the righteous man who suffered cosmic suffering to prove and demonstrate that Job's joy was really in the Lord and not in all of the material things of this life? That Job, as he is facing God... Do you remember out of the whirlwind, God speaks to Job, and what does He say? He says in Job chapter 38, verse 2, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Friends, part of what the Lord is communicating to Job is that we should not speak about the living God and about what He is doing in our lives and in the lives of others if we don't actually have knowledge of who He is. You see, we're robbed of so much joy by the babbling of ignorant men in the pulpits of America. I I mean that this this is the most soul-crushing reality that I, I seemingly watch day in and day out. And that is that ignorant men propagate foolish doctrines from their pulpits and it really does crush people. I was sitting with my wife not more than two weeks ago with some friends of ours. And they had been counseling a young woman who came out of a movement much like ours where the Word of God in that movement is not enough. Men will not only uh, just legalistically lean into the Word, they will also add imperatives to the Word of God. Women, you have to wear skirts. and I mean, I could sit here and go on and on, but you know what I'm talking about. And this dear friend of Sarah and I's asked this young lady, Does that rob you of your joy? And the answer is yes. Anytime that there are men who propagate false doctrines or add just a little bit to Scripture or don't know what the words in this book actually are intended to convey, they are people set about unintentionally often, I believe, robbing people of their joy. And often building empires around their garbage. And friends, that was the reality, the background of what John is writing about here. There had been people called Gnostics who said they had special knowledge. But the reality was they didn't know Christ at all. They didn't have the life of God in their veins. 
They should have sat down and shut up and listened to the gospel. Instead, they were pretending to be gospel preachers. And John, in his old age, as an old man, not as some you know, overzealous young preacher, but as an old man who had watched the world and watched ministry and knew how the church was going to have to weather in the days ahead, he looks at the church and he says, be careful, beloved. These false purveyors of a false gospel will really rob you of eternal joy. They must be careful then of speaking without biblical knowledge. I've had so many people tell me that training in the ministry doesn't matter. I think that is the most nonsensical thing in the world to say. The more I know of the Word of God, the more that I know I need to know more. The more that I lean into the text, the more that I weep over the reality that I've spent 37 years of my life not knowing the things that I now know by God's grace. Ignorance is a real danger to the church. John comes and he says, if you want to have joy... Friends, you will only find that joy in true fellowship with God. You will have to know the real and true living God. You can't live by the legalistic dictates of the traditions of men. You must abide in Christ. And there really are three conditions that this close fellowship uh, will, will have. Now, our salvation is not conditional upon anything that we do. Amen? But our fellowship and our walking with the Lord and our being close to Him and our beholding His glory and our resting in what He has done really is conditional. One, on keeping His commandments. Two, on loving the body of Christ. And three, on being right in our doctrine, especially as it relates to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we really love God, we will in fact have those three qualities continuing to grow in our lives. So with that in mind, let's hear this beloved apostle this morning, writing to us from 2,000 years off for our joy as a body. Starting in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever, whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the Word of God to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning with humble hearts, seeking to hear what your Word has to say, not taking anything away, not adding anything to it, but hearing what you intend in your Word. Might you, by the working of your Spirit, write these truths on all of our hearts to your glory. Amen. 
You may be seated. I want to jump into verses 4 and 5 and talk about overcoming the world, but we're all going to have to wait until next, next week to deal with that. Uh, this week we're going to deal with verses 2 and 3. So as we do that, I want to remind you that leading up to the sixth verse of chapter 4, there really are two main umbrella ideas in the letter that John is writing. And those ideas are one, that we can have joy and fellowship with the triune God. And two, that we can know that we are in fact children of God. We aren't what we one day will be. But we can know that we belong to Him. And from that point, he continues to sum up what he's already said. So up to verse 6, he's building this argument of these two main thoughts. But from that point, he sums up what he's already said, and he puts it into these categories of loving the church, keeping the commands of God, and theological faithfulness. From verse 7 through the first verse of chapter 5, John has been speaking on brotherly love. And some of you say, well then why isn't chapter 5 really beginning on verse 2? Because I didn't have the authority to put the numbers where they go. Somebody else did that work. And it's interesting to know, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but it's interesting to know that the individual that put the verse numbers in the Bible was not actually a theologian, and so sometimes he puts them in odd places. Now, he gets often in Paul's writing the the chapter divisions right, and there's a reason for that. We, We love Paul's writing because it's so linear. Paul tells us what he is going to be saying. He kind of preempts it, and then he goes on to say it, and then there's generally a clear break and another argument. He, he levels uh, in front of us as a church uh, these propositions, these big theological ideas, and then he explains them. He's, he's a great systematic teacher. If I, if I can have the liberty to kind of explain the, the, the writing styles of Paul to John, maybe this morning, this is the difference between them. It's like being in a long car ride with the two apostles. And at one point, Paul is driving, and Paul, well, he, he drives kind of like your GPS acts. He tells you before he's going to get off on an exit, about three miles beforehand, that that's where he's going. John is more like Billy Bob, the NASCAR driver. He waits until he sees an opening, and then he punches the gas and he moves in that direction. That's how John writes. And so we have to give a grammarian who put the, the, the verse numbers in the Bible a little bit of leeway because John's kind of like, hey, watch this. And that's really what he is doing here in this transitional uh, set of verses in verses 2 and 3. He's leaning into a new theme and yet... He's really dealing with an old theme. Uh, verse 2 really is kind of like the turning signal. It's the tap on the shoulder, get ready, we're moving. Uh, and in the verse, very first part, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God. We've just been dealing with loving the children of God from verse 7 of chapter 4 all the way to this point. But then he goes on to transition in the second part of verse 2. When we love God and obey His commandments. You see, he's gliding, he's moving from one topic to another. We are reminded that John takes the whole together here 
And he doesn't think in terms of just these segments. John, uh, Paul, and they're both speaking about the same gospel, but they have two different styles. Paul tends to move in a little bit different direction. But, but John doesn't see the life of a Christian as merely a set of facts, a syllabus, and an outline. He sees the Christian life as a, a set of realities that must be taken together. Again, Paul was propositional in his assertions, but John sees the organic life of the believer. He, he says, look, friends, you have to take all of this together. It's all one animal. He's writing, remember, with purpose to oppose false teachers and false teaching. He is saying that we must test the spirits and have clear theology. And that you must know whether or not, beloved, that you are actually in the faith or not. And he does this because self-deception is a real problem in the church in every age. False professing is a problem in every church in every age. There are always people among the born-again people of God who have made false professions of faith. And so we need to lean into these verses and hear what John is saying even in the transition. And the first thing that we have to do as we lean in is we have to deal with an apparent contradiction. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that one of the things that is said against the Bible continually is that the Bible contradicts itself. It does contradict itself to people who read it backwards or who just pick and choose particular verses and say, see, these two statements taken out of context contradict each other. There. But in reality, when we lean in, friends, don't ever be intimidated by apparent contradictions of the Bible because when you lean into them and you pull out the actual meaning of the text, you will wind up with greater gospel clarity. And you'll see that there's no actual contradiction at all. The two, uh, two verses here are verse 2 of chapter 5 and verse 20 of chapter 4. Again, chapter 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. And then verse 20 of chapter 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has not... He, he who... Ah. I'm going to start that over. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, in verse 20, the way that to know that you love God is that you love your brother or sister in Christ. You love the church. In verse 2 of chapter 5, the way that you know that we love our brother is that we love God. God. And some will say, well, don't these things contradict one another? Aren't they moving from different point, starting points and ending in different places? But friends, there's no contradiction here at all. And it's why it's so important to understand John's overall way of thinking of the, the whole of the life of the Christian. He, he's, not, he's not trying to give a linear position, he's laying out multiple principles of life that all work together. 
Stay with me here for a second. What John has been doing to this point in dealing with keeping the commandments of God and loving the church and being theologically accurate, he's describing the constituent components of what the Spirit of God does in the life of genuine born-again believers. He's describing real life. And so if we think about this in terms of a chicken... Thought that might stick with you a little bit. Um, If we think of this in terms of a chicken, you can look at a chicken and you can think of the different parts. Its wing, its leg, its thigh. And the reality about a chicken and all of these constituent component parts is if you break them up, you really have a delicious meal. But what you don't have when you break the chicken up into its constituent parts for your delicious meal is you don't any longer have a living thing. Because you've divided every one of the pieces from the other. And what John is saying here is don't look at the Christian life in kind of a buffet style of fried chicken. Look at the Christian life as actual organic life. It's still clucking and moving around the barnyard. You get what I'm saying? There is life here. It is a living, breathing thing. To be a Christian isn't merely a set of facts and a set of uh, of propositional truths. To be a Christian means to have the life of God inside of you. And so you can't take and pick and choose the different components. You must look at all of the different aspects. You can't separate them. John is saying where there is life, there is activity. There is breathing. There is circulation. There is movement. Many of us, uh, when we found out we were pregnant for the first time, and Sarah and I hear people's stories now of, of it, that are expecting and they're like, well, I have to go in for the, the scan where I get the 3D imaging. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. We just had the little black and white, I think that's a peanut in the middle of the picture kind of sonogram. And when we look at those pictures, we don't see a full adult individual on the sonogram. All of the women here say, may God be praised forever. What we see is indicative to life. There's movement. There's circulation. There's sustaining of the physical, the baby that is growing there. And John says that the Christian life is no different. That if we are really born again, look inside your own life first, but then as you're discerning the teaching of others, what you will see is love for God and keeping His commandments, loving the church, and holding to clear and accurate doctrine. That is what the life of God produces in the life of a Christian. What we are called to see in the Christian life is a whole. It's complete. It's not individual components. And if you take those things away, any one of those things, then the others cease to function and there isn't life at all. Again, the way that we test is not just to look at one isolated from the other. Here is what he is saying this morning in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. That we keep His commandments, excuse me, when we love God and obey His commandments. And so one question that we can ask is, do we know that we love God? Do you this morning know that you love God? This is the the way that John works these things out. 
We need to ask ourselves this question. Do you, do I love God? And if all you do is sit for a second and think about your feelings about who you conceive God to be, and you say, yes, I love God. Every false teacher would say yes to the same question. Every false professor will say, I love God on those terms of feeling alone. So the way that we ask the question isn't to really aim at, do I love God? The way we ask the question, do I love God, is to look at the other elements that John has dealt with. To ask the question, do I keep His commands? And we're going to get to what that means later. Do I love the church genuinely? Do I hold fast to doctrinal fidelity? And if the answer is no to any of those questions that you don't see in some form or fashion, the reality of those constituent components alive in your life, then what John is saying, mark it down, the bird's dead. It's not really loving God. It's loving a perversion of what you want God to be. Well, I like a God where I can love the church and where I I, I can um, keep His commandments, but... Doctrinal fidelity, not my bag. Now friends, we, I don't want to give you a false understanding here. It, it's not that we all grow into, the the, into theology at the same points. It's, it's not that we all arrive at the same level of doctrinal understanding. That's not true at all. The, the body of Christ is composed of many different members with different strengths and all of that. But, but there will be seemingly, and one who loves God, a desire to know true doctrine, a desire to love the church of God genuinely, and a desire to keep the commands of God. We can ask the same question of having good doctrine. Some people think they have good doctrine if they just know a bunch of old crusty guys. That's it. I can quote a bunch of people who have been dead and in the grave for more than 300 years. My theology must be great. Not true. Biblically, if we're asking the question, do I have faithful doctrine, we have to go to the other three questions. Does this doctrine lead to a love of the church of God? Does it lead to a guarding of the commandments of God? And does it lead ultimately to a glorifying and a loving of the triune God Himself? See, we qualify the one thing we're really concerned about by looking at the other components of the Christian life. And it's really circular in the way that we approach it. And we can think about it. If you don't like the chicken illustration, I came with another one today. A clock. Uh, the, the, the way we look at our Christian life can be analogous to a clock. It's, it's circular. It doesn't matter where you start the clock particularly. It's going to make it around the circle to the other components. It doesn't matter if I set my grandfather clock at home at the half hour and wind it up and flip the pendulum. It doesn't matter that I start there. It eventually will get around to the quarter hour position. It's going to happen. It is a a mechanism that moves in that direction. And so John, what he's doing here in this letter and his method, what we need to see is he starts with the love of God, but then he goes on to the love of the church. And at other times, he starts with the church and he makes it around eventually to loving God. And sometimes he starts at the commandments and ends in love for God. And so again, the question is, well, what happens if one element is not present? Then all of the others are off. 
You're, you're, you're delusional about what it means to live the Christian life because the Spirit of God is building in the lives of His saints the same full-orbed life. He's aiming in the direction of bringing mature believers to standing before the Lord in glory. The Christian life, again, is not a buffet of picking and choosing what you really like. The Christian life is a living thing. It's having the life of God residing inside of you. And the question then is not do we have some pieces. The question is do we have genuine life? And if God has given you life, then He's given you the whole thing, beloved. He's given you a desire for all of the constituent parts. And sometimes I do want to just caveat here. I think one of the reasons why immediately when I say theology, and I don't want to let you off of the hook biblically, but the reason that people go, I don't like theology, is because they don't like bad theology. But good theology is warm and it brings us to who the living God is and it makes the world around us uh, seemingly appear with greater clarity and it helps us in our Christian walk. And friends, there was a time in my Christian walk where you said theology and I thought an exam. But you say theology today and I hear life. I hear the joy of seeing Jesus with greater clarity. So if you struggle with With theology, might I encourage you that it's possible that you're struggling with just bad theology. And I encourage you to study good theology. And to test your faith by that good theology. Some might come and say, well, why is testing our faith so important? Why does John keep on this rabbit trail? I mean, if there was ever a preacher that didn't know when to just sit down and shut up and he's made his points, it is the Apostle John, isn't it? I mean, why not just stop at verse 6 of chapter 4? Why not just end there? Why does he have to lean into us that we would test the spirits and that we would test our own faith? I mean, that makes us feel uncomfortable because it puts us in the dock. Because we're the ones that have to give testimony to our own conscience about where we stand with the holy triune God. Why is he doing that to us? If he seeks to bring us comfort, you know what he should do? The modern person would say, leave us alone. Let us have our programs. Let us cling fast to our tradition. Let us hold fast to the, to the name that's on the sign outside. And we'll die in peace. And John says, that's true, beloved. But it's possible you'll cling to all of those things and you'll wind up in hell. Because the reason that you should test your faith isn't that I'm trying to needle you. The reason that you should test your faith is that there are so many antichrists that have gone out into the world and so many false teachers and there is such a danger of a counterfeit, counterfeit Christianity. The reason that John wants us to test these things is because he would rather us come to saving faith in the 83rd year of our lives than he would for us to spend eternity in hell. And so he keeps on and he keeps on. He wants us to face the reality that the Christian life is a life given by the Spirit of God alone. And he wants us to know if we are in the faith. John has constantly sounded the alarm, the alarm about these antichrists and false teachers. It's so easy for people to claim that they have life when in fact they do not. 
It's so easy to get caught up in the emotionalism and the excitement of religious circles. And that's partially what's going on with the Gnostics. And it's largely what's going on in American Christianity today. Is people are one uh, Sunday after Sunday rah rod into an emotional experience. And friends, I don't dog all of that stuff just because I, 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 I want to sound right. I dog all of it because it's dangerous to you. It's dangerous to me. It's dangerous to our children and to our grandchildren. Because one day they'll wake up and they'll realize I've been sold a bunch of nonsense. I've been clinging not to Jesus. I've been clinging to a bunch of religious junk. John here loves us enough to lean in and to say, don't go down that path. It's so easy to say that the whole of the Christian life is just a feeling or that it's just an attitude towards other people. It's just being nice. It's making fruit baskets and handing them out. That's what Christians do. It's being kind and warm and Friendly. It's so easy to look at the whole sum total of the Christian life and say, well, it's just being moral and it's not sleeping around and it's not smoking and drinking and doing all of these things. It's easy to say, well, the Christian life is merely reading all of the theological books and having everything up in your head. All that matters is having dispensed with understanding of theology. John says no. John says, in fact, that all of those things in and of themselves are not necessarily wrong. Keeping the commandments, being theologically faithful, loving God and loving the church are constituent components, but what Satan is going to want to do is to get people that are unconverted into the church and then get them to fixate on one particular element of the Christian life even though they've never been born again and to have assurance of their Christian life on one thing and one thing only that's merely in their life mechanically or naturally, not supernaturally. Christian life is not to be taken that way. John is heralding and stopping us and saying the Christian life is to be taken as a whole. Now, yes, we start at different points and we start with different natural predispositions. Now, we start by some of us naturally like people. Friends, I would have all of you at my house every Sunday afternoon at my dining room table. I would not have a wife very long. She loves all of you, but we're different in that way. Other people are, they're, they're, very, they're very academic and brainy. Um, they, they love to read, they love to study. But boy, they don't love people a whole lot. People tell me at times that I'm in that camp, and what's, I laugh at that. Like, I'm the worst, if my K through 12 teachers came in and heard that about me, they would laugh at that too. Because, in fact, I told my sister last night, who's a grammarian, and so I'm always nervous to preach and speak in front of her because I know that everything that's coming out of my mind is being, or mouth is being, yeah, she's much better at that. And I said, you know, I really have fallen in love with words because the Lord has given me a love for His Word. Um, all of these, these starting points are different in our lives is what I'm aiming at here. Friends, I don't want you to be discouraged. We do start from different 
points, and we're not all mature Christians the very first moment of our conversion, but what will be present in every truly born-again Christian is a love for the constituent components that John has been talking about. And some may be more in one area or another, but you will constantly see life and growth in these areas. And this is why, again, it's so vital that we examine our own faith in light of these categories of what John has been talking about. Because, friends, we are so easily deceived. You know, one of the things we want to believe more than anything else, that we're good enough. That we're the exception to everything God has been doing in the universe. That this all may be true for the first century church, but it's not true for us today. And promise you, it's more true for us today than it's ever been true. We must test ourselves to see if we're really in the faith. And if we find we're not in the faith, John is not saying, well, get on out of here. He's saying, repent and believe. Come to Christ. Flee to Him. Know that Christ is the one who is sufficient to atone for your sin. It is He and He alone. So what he's doing is he's working through a process of showing us how we can test whether or not we are in the faith. And here in verse 2, again, working through that process. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. You see, we can confuse Christian love for the church merely with a liking for the things of the church. Friends, there are people that are gathered in buildings all across the nation that do not have the life of God within them. And they're going to get out little gold plates and they're going to do all of these churchy things and there's going to be somebody on the stage and they're going to do a lot of hubbub. I think I've shared this with you before. I'll I'll say it again because I was so thankful that a brother would be honest about it. I I, I was at a pastor's conference one time on expositional preaching and this brother stood up and said, what do I do in a Q&A session if I don't believe that any member of my congregation is actually regenerate, born again, and in the faith? I mean, what a startling question, but that's the reality. We, in our natural disposition, can just love being around people, so we love to go to church. But loving being in a building with other warm-bodied creatures and singing songs together doesn't necessarily mean that you, in fact, are a Christian. You can do that for years and still hear the words from Christ, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. You see, it's very different And when we actually love the church. Because when we actually love the church, you know, we don't love the church because the church... And friends, we have to reckon with the reality of this in our own day and age. We tend to want to, because of religious freedoms, build churches with people that are just like us. The fact is that part of what the gospel and what we read this morning is that it's not about our ethnic heritage. It's not about our background. It's not about our social status. It's not even really denominationally, although those convictions matter and that's kind of a separate conversation. The reason that we love the church of God is because we see the same life of God in the people in the church of God. We see the reality that we all were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We all were children of wrath. We were all deserving of punishment from a holy triune God. And yet in God's mercy and His radical kindness, He has set His love upon His people and they are alive unto the things that bring Him glory. And seeing that in ourselves is something that makes us go, whoa, 
And then seeing it in the lives of others is something that makes us go yes and amen. You see, that's the reality of loving the church. It's not loving the church for the natural things that the natural man would love people for. It's loving out of a supernatural love. We love God's children by ultimately loving God. But how do we know that we love God? How can I know whether I love God? And John asks, don't just sit, John says, don't just sit down and look at your mood and your feelings. Go around this circle. Deal with these different constituent component parts. Feelings are fleeting and they fail us. But the question is, do you obey His commandments? If you want to know whether or not you love God, you have to ask yourself, do I obey His commandments? Now, if in your mind, when that question is asked, you immediately hear, since in your mind there are areas all over the commandments of God where you have transgressed the law, where you have not obeyed God's commands, welcome to the club. And know that ultimately this is not speaking about a perfect keeping of the law in the way that we earn our salvation in our own merit. What what John is speaking to here is that our actions over time consistently and in increasing fashion bear out the commandments of Scripture. That the imperatives of God are increasingly seen in the way that we live. There's another word. There's really two words in these two verses that deal with the commandments of God. One is obey. And that is what it sounds like. It's the commandments of God actually being lived out in our lives. But two is keep. And that means to guard them. To hold them close. And these two things are interchangeable. There is a guarding. I love the commandments of God. They are a delight to me, a joy to me. And I want to walk in them. I want to be more like Christ. I want to live in this way. But I believe the real thrust of what John is dealing with in whether or not we actually love God comes in the very last phrase of verse 3 when he says, and His commandments are not burdensome. When I face the commandments of God, the question is, do I resent them? Do I feel like God is being absolutely impossible? Do I argue out what God is requiring of me? When I hear John say, we ought also to love one another, does my heart say to that command, yes and amen, we ought to, and I want to? Or does my heart say, well, I would He'd quit wearing that scuzzy bow tie, get some glasses that aren't round, and start preaching under 30 minutes, then I'd love him. I'm just using me as an example, and that's silly. Our hearts do that. The question is, when we come to the commands of God, do we argue that God is the one that is unjust? And if we do, then mark it down, you're not in Christ. Because what it means to be a Christian is to know that we are the ones that are unjust. But we have been loved by a just and merciful Savior. Do I try to get out from under the force of the commands? You know, one of the most absurd things in the church is this, and we've all probably been guilty of it to some degree or another. 
It is the kind of living where we look at that, we strain after gnats, we swallow camels, where we pick some small minutia part, constituent component, and then we just rail on that one thing and come to find out that the way that we apply the commandment of God isn't actually the way that God intended the commandment at all. We end up just being Pharisees and lording heavy burdens on other people. To love the commands of God is to be an individual who meditates, as Psalm 1 says, on the precepts of God day and night. We think about them. They, 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 they dog us in a good way. And they encourage us. And they uplift us. And, and we say, yes, that is true. You are just. I am not. So there's this forceful, do you love do you say yes and amen to the commandments of God? What this really comes down to is what I think Jesus was speaking of in Matthew chapter 11. You'll remember in verses 20 through 24, Jesus has been denouncing the cities that have seen miraculous things and that had been performed, but the people in those cities where all of these miracles had been performed, they refused to repent and turn to Christ. You see, what we see in that reality is Jesus is not speaking to people He would ever consider could keep the commandments in a way that they would be salvific in their own effect. He's looking at a fallen world, but yet He's calling us who have broken His law to repentance and faith. And we get a clue about what it means to be people who live under the commandments of God in a way that they aren't burdensome to us in verses 25-30. through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son you get this feeling of the fellowship that John's speaking with coming through these verses. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then he makes this declaration. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus tells us a lot in this one passage. One, no one knows the Father unless the Son chooses to reveal the Father to them. Two, there's this background that the Pharisees were loading on burdensome laws to people. Friends, don't we live in a day and age where we live with burdensome laws? Now, they don't wear the phylacteries and all of that, they tend to stay in positions of power and constantly we turn on the news or, or, or we listen to what's going on in the culture and somebody new is offended by something. And there's a new law generated by mankind that we must live under and live in fear and trembling because if we say the wrong thing, then we're going to be labeled as a bigot or hateful or whatever. Jesus says you don't have to live under those things. Come to me. Because my yoke is light. You see, don't live in religious... Friends, I'm, I'm telling you. If you think coming to the Word of God and saying, well, we should build the church around this, 
But boy, there's some things that we should add to Scripture. You are laying down ruts to destroy the joy of generations that follow. We need the Word of God at the center of church and the Word of God alone because that burden is light. And part of what's going on here, part of the joy that, is, 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 that Jesus is speaking about, you, again, you can't, you can't take these verses and, and, and piecemeal them out. What Jesus is saying is that my commandments aren't burdensome in the lives of those that I have chosen to reveal the Father because the reality is I will write my law on their hearts. I will reveal the holy, glorious nature of my Father. And I will show them His goodness. But His commands won't become burdensome to these people because they will know that they're welcomed and loved in Christ. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 kind of leans in that direction. God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. To have the life of God in you means to have the, the, the law of God written on your heart in a way that when you hear it, and maybe you hear a new aspect of the law, you go, yes, that is written here. I know that that is true. God has written His law within the hearts of those that He has given new life, and they don't find it burdensome. They don't argue about it. They don't add to it. They say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to live in accordance with this law that reflects His goodness to me. And one day, I know I will be like Him. I will be set free from sinning against the law. And I can't wait for that day. And then part of what comes out of that, a looking forward to the day that we're glorified and we no longer sin, that song Saved to sin no more. Every time we get to sing that, what is that going to be like? Not to be grumpy in the morning. To be able to, to function without frustration and, and the reminder of past hurts and all of those different things that dog us as human beings. But friends, here's the oddity in our day is that there are some men who will tell you, well, just live with that desire of one day wanting to be like Him and then live your life the way you want to now. That's not the life of a Christian. The individual who has come to the point that says, God has written His law on my heart and I love Him for doing so and I love His law. He is just. I am unjust. But one day I will be just like Him. Those people will not just say one day that's going to be true. They will get up in the morning and say, today I want to be one step closer. I want to live in light of these things. I want my life in the here and now. What happens, one of the things R.C. Sproul said that I always loved is right now matters for eternity. Our lives, not living seeking to earn the favor of God by living out the commandments of God, but knowing that we have been given life in Christ and now we can bring Him glory by living in His strength to honor His commands. That is what it means to love God. Not just merely to have sentimental feelings. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that if there, are, if there is anyone here in the sound of my voice that has been convicted and knows that they are not born again, and Father, they would be given new birth, and Father, that they would turn to you in repentance and faith, cling to Christ and to Christ alone. 
Father, I pray that we would be encouraged to love Your church more as we ought to, to be more theologically faithful. We fail, all of us, in that area so often. Pray, Father, that we would love You. Pray that we would love our neighbor. Father, I don't pray, uh, we pray that we don't ever do any of those things in a way that would bring us glory, because that would be sin in and of itself. We pray, Father, that all of these things would be true in the life of this church, collectively and individually, in a way that would bring you glory. Father, I pray that we would continue to be Christians who check ourselves and, and look into our own lives. And Father, that we would be discerning individuals concerned with the truth being proclaimed in the church. Father, we pray this morning that our worship would come to you through the blood of Christ and be received for your own glory. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand one final time, we're going to lift our voices.